Good morning. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for the power came out from him and healed them all. Let us pray. Dear Lord, please give Pastor Andrew wisdom and power to speak the truth of your word, and please give your church discernment and understanding, leading to change and to greater love. Amen. Well, as we dig into Luke chapter 6, I just want to open with the question, and the question is, when have you ever been faced with, like, with a big decision, uh, a big, crucial decision, an important decision in life? Maybe uh, it's who you're going to marry, maybe it's where you're going to go to school, maybe it's a financial question, maybe a career uh, question, maybe even right now. Uh, you're facing a difficult decision and you're weighing the pros and cons. You're seeking the input and the wisdom and the thoughts of others and you're praying about it and you're still unsure uh, which, which direction most uh, glorifies God and is, is wise and honoring to Him. Well, imagine uh, if that decision that you're wrestling with not only impacted your life and maybe your family and some of your friends, imagine if that decision impacted the whole world and everyone who lived in it. And if you can imagine that and kind of think about that for a little bit, you can see and begin to, to, to sense the significance of our text. Because Jesus is facing a decision uh, that will have massive implications for the future of every person to ever live on this planet. Luke 6, uh, verses uh, 12 through 19 are uh, momentous, a massive uh, decision time in the life of Christ in the gospel. It's a watershed moment, a crucial time of decision. Remember that Jesus' earthly ministry is only three years. And for those who like to do the chronology of the gospels and try and timeline it, uh, there's quite a bit of discussion if at this point a year has passed. Some people, some people think two years has passed at this point. That's not a lot of time for the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so it's this watershed moment. Uh, Opposition is growing against the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember last week, that last verse in verse 11, the Pharisees were filled with fury. They're angered. They discuss with one another what they might do in Jesus. It's the early rumblings that will eventually lead to the crucifixion of Christ on the cross. So time is passing. Opposition is growing. What must Jesus do? How will the mission of Jesus continue after his ascension? We have in our text then uh, the small beginnings of a new people a new community, a new church. In fact, as a total side note, remember a week or two ago we talked about new versus old and new wine and the new wineskins. And then Luke chapter 6 is bringing out the new covenant or the new Sabbath that's found in Jesus Christ. In our text, you have the new people of God. And in a week or two, we'll consider uh, the, new, uh, the new teaching of Christ for his disciples was, as Luke gives his version of the Sermon on the Mount. But we're at this, this crucial text of Jesus deciding and choosing who will carry on the mission, who, who will preach his gospel, who will plant his church, uh, who will, in essence, again, carry on his mission. And my goodness, who is sufficient for that? Who is sufficient to carry on the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who's competent for that? So a crucial, crucial moment I hope you're kind of feeling that a little bit as, as we think about it. And so what does Jesus do? This crucial moment is upon him. It's decision time. What does Jesus do? He prays. In fact, this is the only place in all the Gospels where we read that Jesus prayed all night long. He seeks the Lord's face in prayer. So this morning, in light of the fact that for the month of March, we're calling that our our Emphasis on Prayer Month, and we're inviting everyone and hoping everyone will come on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and meet us in here and and pray together and come awake, come alive to who God is and what he's doing. I decided this morning, as I thought and prayed on this, we're just going to zero in on verse, verse 12 and think about prayer. And think about what that has for our life. Next week, we're going to dig into those, those apostles and, and try and, and, and figure out something about them. In fact, the title of this message is A Bunch of Nobodies. That those, that those apostles were a bunch of nobodies. In fact, we don't know hardly anything about, about a few of them, a little more than just their name. Yet these are the men, the scripture tells us in Revelation, their names are etched on the foundation of heaven. This is an amazing text, and I'm excited to, to dig into it with you. But this morning, we're just going to focus on prayer, our theme of prayer, and I hope that it encourages us, that the Lord will use it for each one of us uh, to be prayer warriors and seeking his face. So prayer time. Verse 12, right? In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. Don't you love how it just says, the mountain, like, he did it so often that they just knew it was the mountain. That's the mountain where Jesus goes to pray. All night, he continued in prayer to God. And you know, you would think if there was ever anyone, ever anyone who's, who's walked the face of this earth, who we would think that, that that person can go without prayer. It's our sinless Savior. Right? If you think there's ever anyone who could go, go without praying, it's Jesus. But Jesus prays more than any of us. He commits to it more 
than any of us. No one ever prayed as much as he did. Remember, in fact, if you want to flip back with me quickly to Luke 3, 21 and 22, it seems like ages ago when, when we looked at that together, but that, uh, that covers his, his baptism. And, and by the way, we're on track to make it through Luke in about three or four years. So how's, how's that sounding? Uh, but Luke, there's so much here, and I, I'm thoroughly enjoying it, and I, I hope and I pray that you guys are also. But Luke 3, 21 and 22, uh, John the Baptist is baptizing. We pick it up in verse 21 where it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was what? He's praying. And the heavens are open, the Holy Spirit descends on him. I, it's my conviction that what Jesus is praying for there is he's praying for the Spirit in light of several uh, texts in Isaiah. Uh, but Jesus is baptized and he prays. And then look at Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 42. He's just healed many, uh, including uh, Simon's mother-in-law. Uh, and Luke 4, 42 uh, picks it up and says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. The implication being he goes there to pray. Then Luke chapter 5, verse 16, which we thought about recently, he's healed the leper. His popularity is growing exponentially. But verse, verse 16 of Luke 5 says, Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And then our text, right? A whole night in prayer. All in all, as you make your way through Luke, uh, Luke records 13 different occasions uh, when Jesus is praying. He prayed in gardens. He prayed on the seashores. He, he prayed on the banks of the Jordan River, right? He prayed on mountainsides. Sometimes he prayed by himself. Sometimes he brought uh, other disciples with him. Even his last words on his lips as he hangs on the cross is what? It's prayer. In Luke 24, 34, Jesus cries out in prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Same chapter, Luke 24, verse 46, uh, Jesus' final words, as far as we know, before he passes, Father, into your hand, I commit my spirit. So even his dying breath is prayer. And even now, as he's ascended, what is Jesus doing right now? He's praying. Interceding on our behalf. For Jesus, prayer was no mere afterthought to his life. Prayer was what drove him. It's, it's part and parcel of, of who he was, everything he said and did. For him, prayer was like breathing. And, and every chance he could get, he wanted to be in the company of his father. I believe Jesus was the, the living embodiment of Psalm 42. Remember Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2? In Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, it says, As the deer pants for the waters, so my soul pants for you. I think Jesus is that living embodiment. His soul pants for the Father. He thirsts for God. He thirsts for the living God. Another way to say it or think about it is prayer for Jesus was his me time. Right? That's his me time. You guys have your me time, right? What you do to recharge, uh, to refocus, to re-energize. Prayer was that for Jesus. It was his me time. It's what he spent time doing. He enjoyed doing. The father was his most treasured possession. And so he's, he stays up all night talking to his father. It's just an amazing text. Think of it when uh, you come across an old friend you haven't seen in years. What do you do? 
You normally talk for hours, right? And before you know it, it's been five or six hours you've been talking. Ever happened to you? Or flashback, or maybe even it's, it's right now, you're, you're dating someone and you're in love with that person, or you can remember back when you first met the person that you married, and you could talk all hours of the night, right? And before you knew it, again, you've been talking four or five, six, seven hours. I think that's what's, what we're seeing here in our text. It's a beautiful picture of the intimacy, the love, the affection between God the Father and God the Son. If, if he started at, at 8 p.m. at night and, and wrapped up at 6 in the morning, he prayed for roughly 10 hours. 10 hours on the mountainside, under the starry sky. 10 hours not being disturbed. 10 hours not being distracted. 10 hours of no instant messages, of no messenger of, of no social media of no tv no youtube no fox news or whatever it is that you watch nothing none of that 10 hours of undisturbed undistracted communion with the father the scripture does not tell us exactly what he prayed for but i think there's some clues in the context which would provide some some thoughts or ideas some some guesses educated guesses on what he prayed about we we talked about verse 11 Verse 11 talks about the Pharisees are outraged. They, they want to get rid of this guy. They're trying to figure out what to do with him. Opposition is growing. Jesus Christ knows that. They're ultimately going to try and get rid of him through the cross. And so I think it's fair to say he spent some time that night praying for strength. As he knows what he will endure. He knows the cross that is before him. And he's praying for strength. Praying for wisdom. I think also in, in light of uh, verse 13, where as soon as daybreak comes, he goes, he gathers all of his disciples, and from them elects out of them 12 apostles, that it's fair to say he spent a great deal of the night praying for God's will concerning who these 12 men should be. It's decision time, and so he seeks the Father's guidance as to who these men should be. Remember, Jesus did nothing apart from the Father's will. Think of verses like John 5, 19, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. And then John 5, 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own. It was his food, his pleasure, his joy to do the will of the Father. And so he prayed privately and fervently to know the men that God had chosen to be the apostles. And, and later in John 17, verse 6, Jesus prays this to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Talking about the 12 apostles. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So I believe Jesus is spending a good chunk of that night praying for these men. Praying for God's wisdom and who these men would be. And then in knowing who they are, praying for them. Praying for their work in the world. Praying for their preparation for that work. Praying for all that would be accomplished through them in the future. And maybe you're kind of wondering, what about Judas? Right? The one who, uh, verse uh, 16 ends by saying, became a traitor. Wasn't that a mistake? Maybe Jesus, you should pray a little bit longer. He would have saw that one coming. But the fact of the matter is, the betrayal of, Ju of Judas was a part of God's plan for the death of his son. It was no mistake. We know from John 17, 12, where Jesus prays to the Father, 
while I was with them, that is the apostles, I kept them in your name who you have given me. I've guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that's Judas. And he says, that happened, that scripture might be fulfilled. It's no mistake. God's perfect plan is moving forward to the choice of these 12 men. So that's verse 12. I think that gives us a fair understanding of what that verse is saying. I'm going to spend the rest of the time just trying to drive home three points of application. And the first point of application coming out of verse 12 is that like Jesus, we should pray much. Like Jesus, you and I should pray much. Again, just to think about that fact of Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, if he needed to pray, if he needed to get away, away from distractions around him, how much more do I need to pray and do you need to pray? If Jesus, the incarnation of the wisdom and power of God with no sin, if he couldn't say, it's okay, I got it, but instead needed to go to the Father for wisdom and direction and power and strength, how much more do you and I need to pray? Because I don't got it, <laughs> all right? Do you? I don't, I, don't, I don't go through the day thinking, I got this. We don't got this. We don't, we don't have any idea what's going to happen in that day, what's going to transpire, right? Constantly thinking, I don't got this. I don't know what to do. And what that should do is drive us to prayer. We need wisdom. We need guidance. We need strength. We are insufficient. And so we pray much and we pray often. Just as prayer was me time for Jesus, it should be me time for you and I. I don't know how many of you are, are on Facebook or if you are on Facebook, if you're friends with Rory and Christy Moore, of course, they're the missionaries we've, we've supported for years, and they returned back to Togo after a medical furlough for a few months here in the States. Just two or three weeks ago, they returned. Uh, when they returned, they posted this video on Facebook of their dog. I, I apologize if I'm saying this wrong. Sometimes they watch. So Rory and Christy, if you're watching this, and, I, and I'm butchering the name of your dog, I apologize. I think it's Danza. It's D-Z-A-N-T-A. So something like that. But there's a video where they return to Togo and their dog, uh, Danza, uh, goes berserko <laughs> when they return. Uh, the, the dog tries to jump on them, lick their face, was falling all over, all over himself to be with them. The dog went nuts. You ever had that where you're gone for a week or two? Maybe someone else is watching your dog for you, you get back and that dog just goes crazy. Right, so happy to see you. The only thing that mattered to that dog is the dog wanted to be with them. That's a great teacher, isn't it? Are you like that in your relationship with the Father? Dogs are good teachers. I don't really like dogs that much, but they teach. <laughs> they humble me. That's, that's humbling to see that video and to think of Jesus, how that was his me time. He's falling all over himself to spend time with the Father. Are you falling all over yourself to spend time with the Father? To commune with him? To be with him? Is that your heartbeat? Do you so love and enjoy the Father? The only thing that matters is I want to spend time in prayer with him. I want to commune with him. I want to know him. Is prayer like breathing to you? Do you pant for the living God? How is your prayer life, right? That, that's what this text 
is challenging us with. Like Jesus, we should pray much. Maybe this morning what you need to do is the Spirit's working in your heart is you need to repent. Maybe your heart has been cold-hearted. Maybe you've been straying a slow fade from the Lord Jesus Christ and you find your heart this morning is listless and apathetic and cold to the things of Scripture and the Lord. I plead with you, repent. Ask the Lord to return to you the joy of your salvation. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Well, secondly, like Jesus, not only should we pray much, but like Jesus, we should seek the Father's will before making major decisions, before major events. We, if we make our way through Luke and Acts, uh, we, we see that before every major decision, every major event, Jesus and his people are doing what? They're praying. We see it in our text. Jesus has a major decision. It's decision time, so it's prayer time about the 12 apostles. In Luke 22, just moments away from his crucifixion, he's about to be betrayed by, by Judas. Jesus is in the garden doing what? In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, uh, before choosing Matthias to replace Judas, right? Remember, they, they say, we've lost Judas, we need to get back to 12, and they give, give who they need to be, they give qualifications, you know, uh, credentials, and then they, they say, they go in prayer in Acts 1, 14, uh, seeking the Lord's will to know who that person should be, and they choose Matthias, in Acts 13, uh, just as another example, uh, the early church is gathered and praying, and as they are praying and fasting, uh, the Holy Spirit sets apart uh, Paul and Barnabas for the work of missions. That launches the greatest mission movement that's still going on today. We are reaping the benefits of that today. So as you make your way through Luke and Acts, there are all these examples that affirm over and over that decision time is prayer time. Major event is prayer time. And so again, maybe there's some major decisions coming up in your life, a, a financial decision, maybe a, a career decision, maybe uh, a school decision as you think about the future, maybe a family decision uh, regarding uh, your marriage or your children. Think about our church with the ministry action plan hope you continue in prayer about that as, as we make major decisions that will, uh, Lord willing, bring glory to his name. As, as maybe you have that in your mind, these major events, these major decisions, are you bringing them before the throne in prayer? Please don't make the mistake, and we've all done this, but please don't make the mistake of going ahead with it, right? With this major event, major decision, and you go ahead and you make that decision, then afterwards you pray about it. Kind of like, bless this mess, right? <laughs> Jesus is so helpful here. This major decision to make, and he spends the night in prayer. Then he chooses the 12. He doesn't choose the 12 and then be like, hey, Father, bless this. But man, we do that all the time, don't we? I know I'm guilty of that more than I want to be guilty of that. That needs to change. We need to be people of prayer. We need to pray fervently for God's will receiving his answer, go forth in confidence with what will bring glory to his name. Please hear this. We, we trust way too much in our hunches, in our feelings, in our emotions. I am so tired of people saying it feels right. It doesn't matter if it feels right. That doesn't mean it's right. 
pray about it all, or not even pray about it, and it feels right. If it goes against Scripture and it feels right, it's, it doesn't matter how you feel. We trust way too much on our own wisdom, our own hunches, our own feelings. We must pray first, pray second, pray third, pray fourth, and so on as we seek the Lord's will. So like Jesus, pray much. Like Jesus, pray before major decisions, major events. And thirdly, like Jesus, pray for church leaders. Pray for future leaders and workers Right? We, we see that from our text. Uh, Jesus is choosing the future leaders of the church who will lay the foundation for the church, Christ himself being the cornerstone, and will even be etched on the foundation of, of the eternal heavens. And so we see Jesus here praying for future leaders. And I think there is great instruction there to be praying for our leaders in churches and for future leaders, future workers. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 1, Paul writes, Finally, brothers, pray for us. And I've said this to you before, and I, uh, I'm joyful to say it again. If, if you want a better pastor, pray for me. Amen? And it's the same stands true for Josiah. Josiah's not here this morning. He's down gallivanting down in Florida in the land of sunshine. Uh, but the same is true for both of us. If you want better pastors, you can get those pastors by praying for them. Let this thought uh, sink deep into your hearts that uh, I will only be such a pastor as your prayers make me. That's humbling. If I'm to be useful in the hands of God, I need your prayers. And, and no doubt, as, as your pastor, I must be faithful in prayer myself, in study, in the word, in doctrine, in conduct. Uh, but we, uh, we must do that, and you must be faithful for us in prayer. But first to tell you, I'm small, I'm weak, I'm insignificant. I, I often don't know my right from my left. I feel like Solomon. Remember that in Solomon where Solomon gets as the king and he's asked whatever he wants. He says, I don't know my right from my left. I need wisdom. My goodness, I can relate to that. Sometimes as pastors, we like to pretend uh, that we're these super saints, but we're not. Hopefully you see that through that veneer. As pastors, we are tempted like Peter. We pout like Elijah. We get cynical like Jonah. Pastors deal with discouragement and loneliness and pain and fear and frustration. I'm telling you, there's no greater gift you can give me than to pray for me. I think we see that modeled in the Lord Jesus Christ here. And I would ask that when you pray for me and for Josiah and for other, other pastors of other churches, Please don't just pray, Lord, bless Pastor Andrew. What does that even mean? I, I, I don't know what that means. Get, get specific. I would ask you would pray for myself and, and Josiah and other, other pastors that we would be bold and unashamed of the gospel. That you would pray for us that Jesus would be high and lifted up in our lives no matter the cost. That we would live and breathe Jesus Christ. That the word of the Lord would spread quickly and be glorified uh, through us. That we would be scripture saturated in all that we say and do and think. That we would be filled with Christ-like compassion. That God would guard our hearts from bitterness and cynicism and resentment. 
That you would pray for your pastors to have spiritual protection from the world, the flesh, the devil, from temptation. That as pastors, we would fear God and not man. That we would have confidence in the gospel, not in ourselves. That we would love our families well. Right? First Timothy 3, no one should be a pastor who's not setting the standard in their home. That we would grow in godliness, that we would hate sin and love righteousness, that we would be quick to repent, that we would be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. And don't just pray that for your pastors, pray that for your deacons and deaconesses, pray that for our nursery and children's church workers, pray that for our growth group leaders, our children's and student workers, pray that for our missionaries. Pray uh, not just for our current leaders, but pray for future leaders. Jesus models that here in our text. He also commands it. Remember Matthew 9, 37 and 38? Jesus says in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, that the harvest is plentiful, but the what are few? The laborers. What are we supposed to do then? What's he say? He says, pray earnestly. Not just pray to the Lord, but pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out what? Laborers into the harvest. Isn't that what Jesus is doing in our text? He's praying earnestly, fervently, all night long for laborers to go out into the harvest. We must pray. We must, like Jesus, pray for current and future laborers in his church. I think I've shared with you a fair amount of times that uh, Charles Spurgeon is, is my personal hero. The man was a phenom. <laughs> so I'll share with you a little bit from his life, and I, I hope this will connect for you at the end. You might not quite see where I'm going with it at the moment, but Spurgeon lived and preached, if you don't know, in, in the 1800s in the city of London. He pastored at what was called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, he was a biblically faithful, evangelistically fervent, self-sacrificial, uh, powerful in the pulpit, a great defender of the faith. He ministered for nearly 40 years at the same church, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, to a congregation that grew to uh, some 6,000 members. In 1858, Spurgeon preached to a crowd numbering nearly 24,000 people. By the end of his ministry, they estimate he had preached to over 10 million people. Now, that's amazing because that's pre-YouTube and TV and all the social media that's out there. 10 million people before the world got smaller through technology. 10 million. He was an author. As an author, he published approximately 150 books. His sermons sold more than 56 million copies. In his day alone, his sermons were translated into more than 40 languages, and now you can buy the whole set of 62 volumes of his sermons. By the way, he dies fairly young in his 50s. During his time, he founded two orphanages. He founded a ministry for hurting women. He was an ardent abolitionist. He started a pastor's college. He launched clothes closets and soup kitchens. By the age of 50, he started more than 60 social ministries, all of which were designed to meet physical and spiritual needs. He was a relentless evangelist, clinging tightly to the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. 
By the end of his ministry, he baptized over 15,000 people. David Livingston, a well-known missionary to Africa, once met with him and asked Spurgeon, how do you manage to do two days work in a, in, or two men's work in a single day? And Spurgeon, referencing the spirit, said, you've forgotten there are two of us. But just filled and fueled and fired by the grace of God. There's a well-known story of several college students uh, one day going to the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London to, to hear Spurgeon preach. And as the story goes, Spurgeon meets them at, at the door and offers to show them around. And they quickly take that, take that up and he shows them around. And at one point, he asked them if they would like to see the church's boiler room. And they kind of thought, well, that's weird, but sure, let's, let's go check that out. Um, and so they do, and what Spurgeon does is he takes them downstairs into the basement of the church where they saw hundreds and hundreds of people on their knees praying. And Jesus referred to that, or Paul, or Spurgeon, whoever the guy was, referred to that as the boiler room, the power plant of the church. And would repeatedly say that was the key to his success. James chapter 4, verse 2 says, You have not because you do not ask. I ask you this morning, where are the Spurgeons of today? Are you asking for them? You have not because you ask not. When's the last time you pleaded with the, pleaded with the Lord to fill his church with an army of Spurgeons? You have not because you ask not. Look again at verse 12. Verse 12 says, in those days, in those days, what days? Days of great opposition. Days of fury and anger towards the Messiah. Days that were increasingly growing short, right? He has three years of ministry and maybe two years left or one year left, depending on where it falls chronologically. So in those days, Short days, days of opposition, what does Jesus do? He prays. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how about us? Are our days any less short? Are our days any better? Is not our day, our hour, our time filled with fury and anger and rage? Wars and rumors of wars, and is not the church increasingly listless and apathetic and lukewarm and filled with hypocrisy? As we think about those days and these days, is it not time, is it not a clarion picture that like Jesus, we must pray? It's not the time to complain and vent on social media or yell at your TV. <laughs> It's time to pray. In days like this, times like this, we must pray. If you're exercised, bothered, worked up by the depravity that's on display in our world, get down on your knees and like Jesus, pray. Pray. 